Welcome to the Wayside Podcast. The audio for this episode comes from one of the sermons given this past Sunday. We hope you are inspired and encouraged by what you hear. Word, all things came into being. Speak to us in this time of worship with you that we might be inspired by our Holy uh, Father's Spirit, that that Spirit might come and dwell within each of us, and that we might find the security offered in His grace and mercy, the security offered in salvation through Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Just checking. Next week, this time change, right? Are you saved? I would, that was rhetorical. Hold the answer. Are you saved? Let's be honest, those three words are like a foreign language to many parts of our techno-industrialized, savvy world. But of course, when we say them or when we hear them here in Texas, we, we know something of what is being asked. We know that salvation has something to do with our connection to God. Maybe we flipped the channel from law and order to CBN. Maybe we heard it at a church service. Maybe we heard it when an itinerant missionary knocked on our door and rounded up his or her pitch with the words, are you saved? I was once approached by an itinerant preacher when I lived in Pensacola, Florida, before I came to be with you. And I was actually in my garage and uh, I saw these uh, folks making their way around the neighborhood and kind of heading toward my way. Unfortunately, in my garage, there was only one exit and it happened to be the same way they came into the garage. So they started the conversation and they wanted to get around to, and they ended up by, you know, are, well, are, are, you, are you saved? I said, yes, I am. In fact, let me tell you what I do for a living. <laughs> and then when we finished up, we kind of smiled, had a little prayer. And I said, you know what? That guy right over there, though, he really needs to talk to you across the street. <laughs> Most people, when they hear that question, they probably immediately associate it with ultimate salvation. Like, are you saved from going to hell? But as you know, the poet Milton wrote, it is more likely that the doors to hell are locked from the inside, not from without. For as Jesus teaches later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, 14, it is the will of our heavenly father that not one of his children would be lost. So how are we to really answer that question, are you saved? Well, in this gospel lesson that Lisa just read for us, we encounter Jesus and the disciples outside the great temple, and they're marveling at its size and magnificence, this holy place that had become the literal hub of religious life. And it was a magnificent place. And yet Jesus kind of kicks the teeth out of that smile that they're having by saying, as for what you see here, all of it, everything your eye beholds will be torn down. When asked by some of his disciples when these things would happen, Jesus begins to utter some horrifying glimpses of the future, apocalyptic visions of the future, culminating with the destruction of the temple. What are we to make of all of this? If the temple was the cornerstone of the building of God's kingdom on earth, why would Jesus say it would one day be wiped away? 
Well, in part, you Bible students know, he was actually offering a prophecy of something that would actually come true. The temple was magnificent. It took over 20 years to construct. It sat atop Mount Moriah. It was supported by stones up to 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide. And the outward face of the temple was covered over with plates of gold. The church historian Josephus wrote of the temple, whatever was not overlaid with gold was purest white. Herod added a golden vine for one of its decorations with grape clusters that were as tall as a human being. For many, it was not just a place that held the presence of God. It had become a tangible place to trust for protection in this life and in the next. And yet that trust would be wrongly placed for its magnificence would be its own undoing. In AD 70, some 40 years later, Titus, soon to be the emperor of Rome, laid siege to Jerusalem. 97,000 people in Jerusalem were taken as slaves and over 1 million people were killed either by sword or slowly starved to death. And Titus's final death blow was to crush the spirits of the early Jews and Christians by destroying the temple. The flames melted those golden plates into stones and scavengers would later come, quote, not leaving one stone on another, end quote, because they were scraping the melted treasure from between the fallen massive sculptures. What Jesus said, what he talked about, Came true. Was Jesus' purpose to simply take the wind out of the disciples' sails? No. Jesus loved the temple. He worshiped there. He taught there. When it was defamed in his presence by buyers and sellers, Jesus drove them out with a whip. So he did value deeply this holy place. But Jesus was, as he continues to do today, trying to remind his followers to place their faith in nothing, absolutely nothing but the saving power of a loving God. The temple was not to be an object of worship. It was to be a place of worship. The sole purpose of the temple was to connect the human with the divine. It was not the source of salvation, but a telescope, if you will, that that pointed up to that source. Jesus was asking in his own parabolic way, are you saved? He was urging them to get beyond their notion that salvation is a matter of what we build and instead about what God offers. It was a whole new concept. It was as old as the book of Isaiah though. It had been around, but it sounded completely new because people had begun to take that object of worship as their source for salvation. So, as we hear Isaiah writing over half a millennia before Jesus' birth, these words, the whole prophetic and poetic verses of Isaiah, you all have been studying Isaiah and Riverway, so I asked Wesley permission to preach on this, one of my favorite passages. But the whole verses of Isaiah are about whom to turn to for salvation when the world is falling apart. And it may feel that way, right now. And so the old prophet sits down and he writes these beautiful words from today's Old Testament lesson. Surely 
It is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense, and he will be my savior. Surely it is God. Surely it is God who saves me. As you know, in in my almost 17 years here at St. Martin's, I've had a few sabbaticals. Some of that time is spent in the United States, some of that overseas traveling with St. Martin's members or better yet, alone with my bride of 40 years. As I like to say, as I just said in my Sunday school class, I love those trips with you St. Martin's people, but I also love to say goodbye to you and then spend some time with my wife. And when it's just, when it's just the two of us, when it's just Laura and Russ, believe it or not, even in my vocation, we like to visit churches. I've now visited more than I can recall. Some of them huge. A few years ago when we traveled down the Danube with some members of St. Martin's, we visited the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Linz, Austria. Have any of you ever been there? Seats 20,000 people. 20,000 people. I thought St. Martin's were big. (laughs) This last summer, we visited St. James in Clapton on the Hill in the Cotswolds. The entire church could be fit in this space. Some churches were lively in programs, ministries, but most of them sadly seemed lifeless. Some of them even beginning, some of them beginning to crumble apart. One of them had a little small box into which you could drop a euro so that the lights would turn on for a few minutes when you came in. We talked to a lot of people about their faith over there. One after another made reference to some disappointment in a church where they were made not to feel welcome, but instead made to feel guilty. Images of divine judgment seem to prevail over images of the loving God. And when you feel like you can't make the grade, why even enter the classroom? Those three words, are you saved, fall on deaf ears when the heart is full of angst and fear and isolation. I stay in touch with the St. Martin's friend and preacher, Max Lucado. We text, we talk on the phone, and he's spoken several times here over the years. And he likes to tell about a significant shift that took place in his own understanding about God. And this shift actually began when he was a young boy. He believed in God, he believed in Jesus and all those great things that Jesus did. But as he said, he began to believe every now and then God really needed his help. So he gave it. And he began to accumulate good works the way Boy Scouts accumulate merit badges on a sash. Max was a Boy Scout, and he was proud of each oval emblem rewarded for his hard work. He paddled across the lake to earn a canoe badge, swam laps to earn swimming badge, carved a totem pole to earn a woodworking badge. He loved showing them off every Thursday when Boy Scouts wore uniforms to middle school. Now, it's interesting because Max actually became a Christian, a believer, about the same time he became a Boy Scout. And early on, he began to make an assumption that God grades on the merit system. Good Scouts move up. Good people go to heaven. Good Christians are saved. So he began to amass a multitude of private spiritual badges, an embroidered Bible for Bible reading, folded hands for prayers, a kid sitting in a pew for church attendance, 
In his imagination, he says, he began to believe the angels were feverishly stitching emblems on his behalf. He said he worked toward the day, that great day when God, amid falling confetti and dancing cherubim, would drape this badge-laden sash across his chest and welcome him into his eternal kingdom where he could humbly display his badges for all eternity. But then some thorny issues began to grow within him, began to bubble up to the surface. As he got older, he began to think, well, if God saves good people, how good is good? God expects integrity of speech, but how much? What is the permitted percentage of exaggeration? Suppose the required score is 80 and he only scores a 79. How do you know your score? So Max did what any questioning teen should do. He went seeking the advice of a a minister and he sat down and he said, so tell me, how good is good? And the minister foolishly, I think, responded with one word, do. Do better, do more, do now, do good and you'll be okay. Do right and you'll be all right. Do more and you'll be saved. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. Many people, maybe some of you, believe that God saves only good people. So be good. Be moral. Be honest. Be decent. Pray the rosary. Keep the Sabbath. Keep your promises. Pray five times a day facing east. Stay sober. Pay your taxes. Earn merit badges. Yet the problem is, for all that talk about being good, still no one can answer the fundamental question, what level of good is good enough? What level of good gets you saved? It's frightening if you think about it. At stake is our eternal destination. So Jesus had a better idea. Isaiah does too. Surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. We contribute zilch. Zilch. As opposed to the merit badge of the scout, salvation of the soul is unearned. It's a gift. Our merit merits nothing. God's work merits everything. The answer to are you saved is yes, nearly 2,000 years ago. When, how, where? Our salvation came to us just outside of Jerusalem on a dirty, dusty hill called Golgotha. And just a short distance from there, when a grave was split open and resurrection became not just a word, but a way, a way of life. Do you know this? Do you know this? If you don't, it may help you understand if you're experiencing what I'll call spiritual fatigue, spiritual exhaustion. And I'm not saying live like you want. I'm not suggesting 
throw morality to the wind and live recklessly and disregard the call on each of us to be holy. We are called to be holy. I'm neither saying that when we fail and fall, which we all do, I'm not saying that there's no need to confess and repent and return to the Lord. We're called to do that too. But what I am saying is that your salvation does not depend upon your perfection. Far from it, it depends on you merely trusting that God loves you, trusting in his grace. You remember um, some years ago when those Chilean miners were trapped beneath 2,000 feet of solid rock. Any of you remember that story? They made a movie out of it. The movie was entitled 33 because there were 33 of those miners desperately hoping for rescue when the collapse of the main tunnel had sealed all that exists and thrust them into survival mode. They ate two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a morsel of peaches every other day. For months, months, they prayed for someone to save them. And on the surface, the Chilean rescue team worked round the clock. They consulted NASA. They met with experts. They designed a 13-foot-tall capsule and drill, first to communicate with them through a small hole and then an excavation tunnel, a larger tunnel. There was no guarantee of success. No one had ever been trapped underground this long and lived to tell about it. But they did. On October 13, 2010 they began to emerge with high fives, victory chants. There's a great-grandfather. There was a 44-year-old who was planning a wedding. There was a 19-year-old. All of them had different stories, but all had made the same decision. They trusted someone else to save them. No one returned the rescue offer with a declaration of independence. I can get it out of here on my own. All I need is new drill. I'll get out here by myself. They had stared at the stone tomb long enough to reach a unanimous opinion. We need help. We need someone to penetrate this world and pull us out. And when the rescue came, they received it. Sometimes we find it hard to simply believe in God's rescue plan, to simply trust in his grace. And when we do that, the result is we become the weariest people on earth. All our attempts at self-salvation guarantee us nothing but exhaustion. We scamper and sweat and strain trying to please God, collecting merit badges and brownie points and hoping it will answer that are you saved question for us. And well, we just become wiped out. When I was a kid, we had a hammock in our backyard. I don't know if you've ever rested in a hammock. It took my sisters a long time, my sisters and me a long time to, to kind of get used to it, to really, to really rest in a hammock. You have to get in and then be still. Because if you don't, you're gonna start flopping around and you might get kind of nauseated, hammock nausea, and you might, fall out to get all together, which I did on a couple of times. I found the best way to enjoy it was to simply just get in. And often when I did, I fell asleep. Some years ago, I was walking in front of the church, big church, one of the many churches we have on this campus. 
And I noticed over the door this big empty space, you know. Kind of like that, but it was empty. And uh, that's when we started thinking about the, the, the tympanum that we put over the church there. And I, I began by asking, I, well, first of all, what a great place for a sculpture. I said, I can't believe this wasn't considered before. I mean, that, you know, somebody was honest enough to say, well, we, we ran out of money. And then somebody said, but, but we did have a design. And I said, well, let me, can, I, can I see that design? And, and they brought it to me, and, and it was a design of the great judgment. God's sending a big batch up to heaven and another batch down to hell. And I said, well, <laughs> let's think about another design. <laughs> and I said, why don't we start thinking about a welcoming Jesus? And so we designed that, under which are the words, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It does not say... Come to me, all you who are perfect and sinless. No, this is just the opposite. Come to me, you who are weary, heavy laden, and exhausted, and sinful. And I'll give you rest. There's no fine print. A second shoe is not going to drop. God's promise has no hidden language. Just let grace happen, for heaven's sake. No more performing for God. No more clamoring for his attention. Of all the things you must earn in this life, God's love is not one of them. Because you already have it. Surely it is God who saves me. And you, stop moving. (laughs) Be still. Know God. Stretch yourself out in a hammock of of grace. Surely it is God. Trust in him. Don't be afraid. You can rest now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to be our savior, to make true the prophecy of Isaiah, that it is you who saves us because you love us. And to finally make that known through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, help us to trust in you and to give our lives to him to not be afraid, and to rest in the gift of your salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening. The Wayside Podcast is a ministry of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. It was created by Ryan Presley and the Reverend Wesley Arning. Be sure to rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to us. This helps more folks discover our podcast. If you'd like to know more about St. Martin's, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.